بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا ما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته We gather once again for the continuing tafsir commentary of Surah Al-Hujarat and today will be the final part as we have reached the end of the surah last week we completed verse number 14 in which we learned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reprimanded certain bedouin who made the claim of faith iman and Allah instructed them that rather than saying we have faith we have iman or that we are mu'min you should say aslamna we have submitted apparently we have become muslim meaning we've only submitted apparently and this was in relation to a delegation that came to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and they had embraced islam but they were one of the late comers to the religion and this was after the conquest of makkah in the ninth year of hijra and they said they they said a few things they made a few claims to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and one of them was this that we are mu'min we are believers we are people of faith so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala corrected them so if i can just quickly translate the previous verse qalat al-a'rab wa amanna the bedouins said we have believed qul lam tu'min say you have not believed walakin qulu aslamna rather say we have submitted walamma yadkhul al-iman fi qulubikum an iman faith has not yet entered your hearts wa in tuti'u Allah wa rasuluhu la yalidkum min a'malikum shay'a and if you do obey Allah and his messenger he will not reduce anything of your deeds in Allah ghafurur rahim indeed Allah is most forgiving most merciful So that was a verse which we completed last week. 
Allah then says, and this is where we begin from today. إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَرْتَابُوا وَجَاهَدُوا بِأَمْوَالِهِمْ وَأَنفُسِهِمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الصَّادِقُونَ Allah says, those who have believed. Sorry, إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ The believers are only those who have believed. And who did not doubt. The believers are only those who have believed in Allah and in His Messenger. Then they did not doubt. And they fought or they strove with their lives and with their wealth in the way of Allah. These are the truthful ones or these are the true ones. Now, this is a continuation of the previous verse. Since the Bedouin and they were from Banu Asad as I explained last week, one of the tribes. What they had done is, even though they had the opportunity of embracing Islam from the very early stages, for various reasons they didn't. And they only embraced Islam at a much later date, after the conquest of Mecca, in the year of delegations, when more or less the whole of Arabia was now turning to Islam. And as the Prophet ﷺ had declared, لا هجرة بعد الفتح That there is no hijrah after the conquest. Since the mark of a person's faith and loyalty was by the hijrah. And specifically the hijrah from Mecca to Medina. And with the conquest of Mecca, that had come to an end. So anyone who embraced Islam in the year of conquest or after the year of conquest in the ninth year of Hijrah, of course, their embracing of the religion was welcome. And they were to be commended. But no one after the eighth year of Hijrah, after the conquest of Mecca, could actually compare with the Muhajirun, that group of believers who had believed in the Prophet ﷺ, embraced Islam in Mecca, who had stood with him, who had suffered alongside him, who had emigrated from Mecca to Medina with him, and who had been at his side at almost every trial every conflict, every adversity. None of the later believers, even in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, could compare with the Muhajirun or with the Ansar. Although the Muhajirun took precedence, the group that belonged or the group that was the most virtuous immediately after them was the Ansar. 
the helpers per se from Medina. And which ones in particular? Again, those who embraced Islam from the very beginning. Because in fact, some of them embraced Islam even before the Hijrah. They were the ones who invited the Prophet And then <laughs> along with the Muhajirun, from the very first day of Hijrah, and even before, they stood with the Prophet and supported him. All the way up to the conquest of Mecca. With the conquest of Mecca, things changed. And nothing would ever be the same in Arabia. And this meant that there was also a clear distinction in those people who embraced before the conquest and those who embraced after the conquest in the eighth year of Hijrah. And that included this group, the Banu Asad, the tribe of Asad, who came to the Prophet and made a number of claims. One, that we are believers. Now the Qur'an does not deny that they were believers, as I've explained in detail. But the Qur'an reprimands them and reminds them that Iman, true faith, is a much higher grade and is a much greater rank that can only be realized with devotion, with true faith, with true struggle, with true sacrifice. And none of these things have yet been witnessed from you, because you've embraced Islam at a much later stage. So your Islam is not denied, but realize that Islam is the apparent embracing of the faith by word by giving the testimony, by verbally testifying that I believe in Allah and in his messenger, But whether that verbal testimony is reflected in the faith of the heart, whether that apparent submission is reflected in the true submission of the heart, that is another matter. So do not claim that. For now, suffice with the declaration that you have become Muslim, but do not make claims of faith. That is a very lofty claim indeed. Then, having corrected them, and also reminding them that you should say, Islam now we have embraced, apparently we have submitted, but, and Iman has not yet entered your heart, but, if you do obey Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Allah will reward you fully. You will not suffer in the least. And you will not lose out. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a continuation tells them. So we have to understand the context of these verses. This is a discussion of the Banu Asad, the tribe of Asad who made the claim of faith. And Allah correcting them and then telling them who the real people of faith were at the time of the Prophet ﷺ and at the time of the revelation of these verses. So the description that Allah gives here is specifically about those Muslims, those companions, those Sahaba who believed in the Prophet ﷺ and who stood with him, who suffered along with him and who fought by his side all the way up to the conquest of Mecca. 
This is the background to the revelation of this verse. It's a continuation of the previous verse. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them that do not make the claim of faith. Rather, you should say of yourselves, we have merely submitted. As for true faith, as for iman, as for who are the real believers, as for who are the mu'minun, they are those whom Allah describes here. Then he says, The believers are only those who have believed in who have believed in Allah and His Messenger. Then they did not doubt. So who is this a description of? It's a description of the companions, radiallahu anhum. Who believed in the Prophet in the face of adversity, braving dangers and hardship in Makkah al-Mukarramah from the very first day. I was explaining coincidentally today in the Jumu'ah Khutbah that I was actually speaking about the significance of Hijrah. That it's something to note that we are in the first month of the 1438th year from the hijrah of our Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa And the Sahaba radiallahu anhum collectively agreed that the Islamic calendar should be calculated from a momentous event, as almost every nation, civilization has done so. But what was that momentous event from which the companions of the Prophet ﷺ under the leadership of Umar ibn Khattab decided to calculate the Islamic calendar? It wasn't the momentous event that they chose collectively wasn't even the birth of the Prophet <clears throat> Even though some had suggested it, it wasn't even the birth of Islam, even though some had suggested it, which was also the beginning of the revelation of the Qur'an. No, the Sahaba anhum ultimately chose the Hijrah, as the most momentous event from which the Islamic calendar would be tabulated. And that's saying something. They regarded the Hijrah as being more significant, more momentous, more decisive than even the birth of the Prophet and the birth of Islam itself. And in the words of Umar ibn al-Khattab he said on that occasion that we will mark it from the Hijrah which was the distinction between Haqq and Batil between truth and falsehood. So why did the Sahaba attach such significance to the Hijrah to the emigration? Why did Allah in the Quran as well in a number of places, distinguish between the muhajirun, those who had done hijrah, those who had emigrated, 
and those who hadn't. And the Ansar. So Allah always mentions the Muhajirun first, and then the Ansar, the helpers. And significantly, the helpers were those, the Muhajirun were those, who did Hijrah before the conquest of Mecca, and the, the Ansar were those who assisted the Prophet ﷺ before the conquest of Mecca. What made, what was the reason for Allah and the Messenger ﷺ distinguishing between these two groups and all other Muslims, even during his time, it's because they passed every test of faith. They stood with the Prophet ﷺ from the very beginning, when it wasn't worthwhile to be a Muslim. In fact, if we look at it, hostile historians have always tried to explain away the embracing of Islam by the early Muslims in Mecca. So, some of the ideas suggested are that the early Muslims were all vulnerable people. Prime, ripe for exploitation. They were desperate. And the prophets of Islam gave them a false hope. So they clung on to that hope. They were economic dependence, so their conversion, their embracing of Islam was for economic reasons. Or it was for social reasons because they were without status. So either they were without wealth and Islam offered them wealth and riches. Or they were without social rank and status and Islam gave them a social uh, position and significance. Or that they were weak and oppressed and Islam gave them protection. We're talking about Mecca here. And Islam gave them protection and strength and so on. None of these claims make any sense whatsoever because the political, social, economic climate of Arabia throughout the peninsula, and even more so in Mecca, was such that if anyone was poor, it was economic suicide to become a Muslim. If anyone was regarded as being socially inferior and lacked significance and standing and position and influence, it was social suicide to become a Muslim. And if anyone was weak and oppressed, and lacked strength and wanted protection and security, then it was mortal, it was mortally dangerous and it was fatal in that regard to actually become a Muslim and join the band of followers around the Prophet 
None of these claims make any sense. It was something else that attracted the Muslims. Furthermore, not all of them were poor. Bilal radiyallahu an, Khabbab radiyallahu an, and others, Ammar radiyallahu an, were indeed poor. And there were others too. But they were far better off economically and financially in their previous position than they would have ever been with the Prophet And that's speaking from a financial perspective. But there were a few Sahaba عنهم, who were poor. Abu Bakr, Uthman, even Umar ibn al-Khattab, and many of the other Sahaba عنهم, Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, and many of the senior muhajirun, they weren't impoverished in any way whatsoever. Nor were they regarded as being socially inferior. They came from the leading clans and families of the Quraysh. They were men of standing and position. Umar despite his young age, actually had a seat in what we can call the Meccan Senate, the Darul Nadwa, the house where they would all gather. So despite his young age, that was actually occupied and dominated by the elders of the Quraysh. But Umar despite his young age, was actually an influential, vocal, and eloquent member, an active member of that Senate. And so on. None of these arguments of impoverishment, of poverty, of financial need, of social searching for standing, or of protection and security, none of these arguments hold any water when you regard the political, social and economic climates of Arabia and Makkah al-Mukarramah in particular. In fact, it was the opposite. Many of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum by embracing Islam, by joining the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and by then doing hijrah from Makkah to Medina, they forfeited their right to family wealth, their right to trade. Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhum's trade suffered when he embraced Islam. So did Uthman radiyallahu anhum's trade suffer. If anything, when the first hijrah from Mecca to Abyssinia took place, Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan radiyallahu an left, along with many of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. Everything points in the other direction. If they wanted peace, security, safety, protection, wealth, social standing, prestige, then all of these requirements demanded, all of these aspirations demanded that they actually oppose the Prophet ﷺ, go with the flow, join with the rest, sing the chorus, and not only refuse to become Muslim, but become active opponents 
of the small band of followers around the Prophet Yet in the face of all of that, this group of believers, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, of great social standing or of meager background, all of them embraced Islam and stood with the Prophet as equals. So what was it? It was something else. And that was the ultimate display of Iman. So Alladina Aman, Innaman Mu'minun, Allah describes the companions, the early companions, and specifically the Muhajirun and the early Ansar. That the believers are only those who believed in Allah and in His Messenger. Then they did not doubt. And how did they not doubt? Allahu Akbar. Ammar ibn Yasir witnessed the martyrdom of his own father and mother. And his mother was the first martyr of Islam, the first person to be killed. And she was a woman, not a man. And she was tortured. They beheld each other's torture. And yet they did not swerve in their faith. Bilal radiyallahu anh. Ammar ibn Yasir radiyallahu And many of the other sahaba radiyallahu anhum, they did not doubt. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu because of his social standing, they didn't physically, well, they didn't torture him, although he was attacked too, as we know, where once he was brutally set upon to the extent that one of them sat on his chest and beat him on his face with his sandals until his face became blooded and he fell into unconsciousness. Abu Bakr even at the time of Mi'raj when they were gleefully seeking an opportunity to ridicule the Prophet ﷺ and even Abu Bakr because they were certain that when we confront Abu Bakr with this fancy tale of his friend visiting the heavens, surely Abu Bakr cannot support him on this occasion and we will gleefully observe his reaction. And yet when he was confronted, Without any doubt, without any hesitation or reservation, Abu Bakr said, if Muhammad ibn Abdullah is making this claim, because he heard it from others, if he is making this claim, then I fully believe him. And in fact, it said that this is when and why he earned the title as Siddiq, the voracious one, the extremely honest one. Trustworthy, the one, the trusting one. So they did not doubt in the face of ridicule, even under torture. And subhanAllah, there are countless stories of men, of women, of former slaves, of slaves, of rich and poor, young and old, all of whom in Makkah al were weak, were oppressed 
And yet, they embraced Islam, they believed in the Prophet ﷺ, and they did not swerve in their faith. The Sahaba along with the Prophet ﷺ, used to pray Salah in secret. Why would it make any sense? They used to visit one another in secret in order to study the Qur'an. They used to gather in secret to pray Salah in small congregations, in homes. The Sahaba anhum would guard the Prophet on occasions inside his house. And they wouldn't open the door. They wouldn't let him open the door. They would open the door first to ensure that no one with a hostile intent came to see him. Sahaba lived in isolation. They lived in fear for their lives. And this is why they emigrated in the first wave of Hijrah from Mecca to Abyssinia, then in the second wave of Hijrah from Mecca to Abyssinia, then in the 13th year of Islam from Mecca to Medina. This was a true test of faith. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored the Muhajirun because they passed many tests of faith. And one of them, probably one of the greatest ones, was Hijrah, was the emigration from Mecca to Medina. And then after the Hijrah, they were still persecuted, but they had some safety and security. And in the second year of Hijrah, in Badr, The Prophet ﷺ, when he requested the Sahaba to join him, he did not want to burden the Ansar. So he only expected the Muhajirun to stand with him. But the Ansar also reassured him that, O oh, Messenger of Allah, we will not leave your side. And then in the third year of Hijrah, we had, they had Uhud. And in the fifth year of Hijrah, there was the campaign against Medina, known as the Ghazwat al-Khandr, the Battle of the Trench. All of these were major events. And they stood with the Prophet An interesting question here. I was teaching Bukhari to the students a few weeks ago. Well, we continue to teach, but this question arose a few weeks ago. One of the students asked, because in Bukhari itself, in Sahih al-Bukhari, there is no section known as the Book of Seerah. And why am I mentioning this? Because what, what have I just said? After the first year of Hijrah, in the second year of Hijrah, there was Badr. In the third year of Hijrah, there was Uhud. In the fifth year of Hijrah, there was Khandaq. So, why are we mentioning only the major battles in the second year of Hijrah, in the third year of Hijrah, in the fifth year of Hijrah? This is one of the objections sometimes raised, so I'd like to clarify something. And in order to clarify it, let me give you the example of the question raised by one of the students in the Bukhari class. When 
I was explaining that in the whole of Bukhari, there is no section about seerah of the Prophet But there is something called Kitab al-Maghazi, the book of expeditions. And these expeditions, so they mainly deal with these major battles and conflicts. Badr, Uhud, the other Ghazawat. There is no book known as the Book of Seerah. So I explained to the students that in reality this is the Book of Seerah. Traditionally, the works of Seerah and the collections of Seerah were all known as Maghazi. They weren't known as a Seerah. So the earliest works of Seerah, the written works, stretching back all the way to the second century of Islam, the Seerah of Ibn Muhammad ibn Ishaq, and before him, Musa ibn Uqba, they were actually known as the Maghazi. So Musa ibn Uqba was senior to Ibn Ishaq, and Bukhari actually relies more on the seerah of Musa ibn Uqba, who died in 141 Hijri, for narrations related to the seerah of the Prophet about the biography of the Prophet But it's not known as the seerah of the Prophet it's known as the maghazi of the Prophet the expeditions of the Prophet Even Ibn Ishaq's work, although later it came to be known as a seerah, mainly it was referred to as the maghazi of Ibn Ishaq, the collections of Ibn Ishaq in relation to the maghazi, meaning the expeditions. <coughs> So one of the students asked that, why is it that in the earliest days the works of Seerah were all called Maghazi? Does that not justify some people's concern? And does that not corroborate some, some people's objection that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was merely a tribal leader who engaged in conflict and led military expeditions? And that's all he was. Because our history, right at the beginning, or the books of Seerah, right at the beginning, were more known as Maghazi. And this is a constant discussion. Like even now, I'm speaking about the second year of Hijrah, Badr, and the third year of Hijrah, Uhud, and the fifth year of Hijrah, the Ghazwatul Khandaq. So I said to the student, it was a spontaneous question, and I gave him a spontaneous answer, but it will help others as well. I said to him, there's a reason for it. It's because in the nation of every history, sorry, in the history of every nation and civilization, things are marked, milestones, 
are marked and remembered by momentous events. But what are the momentous events? People rarely discuss daily life. So in those days, there was very little writing. The Arabs were a people of oral history rather than written history. They would hardly write. Some would, yes. But they were a nation who relied on oral tradition rather than written tradition. Forget 14 centuries ago, I said to the students, now, over the past 100 years, over the past 120 years or so at least, for part of this century and the whole of the last century, we've had the benefit of recording every moment of history with writing, with photography, with moving images, right at the beginning of the previous century. And then with black and white cameras, and then colour cameras, and then computers, and towards the end with the internet. So we have the benefits, 14 centuries on, of remembering almost every single day of the past century. But I'm going to give you a quick test. And I said to the students, and I'll give you the same as well. Tell me momentous events from the first decade of the last century. Quickly, quickly, first decade. The students, in a flash, I said, tell me. No one could answer. Second decade, everyone said Second World War. Sorry, First World War. Third decade, nothing. In the first decade, nobody remembered the invention of the, of, uh, of the plane, the discovery of flight, various other things. Second century, First World War. Third, third, sorry, uh, second decade, First World War. Third decade, the Depression, various other things, nothing. Pro- the era of prohibition, nothing. 1930s, Second World War. 40s, end of the Second World War. Nothing else. The creation of the United Nations and the independence of many of the former colonial countries. No one remembered. 50s, blank. 60s, 50s, one person said, Cold War. 60s, nothing. 70s, nothing. 80s, nothing. 90s, Gulf War. At the turn of the decade, nothing. And so so I said, subhanAllah, over the past century, we've had TV, we've had computers, we've had photography, we've had the internet, almost, we we enjoy almost 99.99% literacy. And yet, even for the past century, what does everyone recall? These are the milestones of any nation. Of, of history, of civilization. People always, these are the things that are etched in people's memories because these are watersheds. These are the major shifts. These are the sudden and dramatic changes. These are the sudden transitions from one condition to the next. And this is what people remember. Not the mundane daily details of life. So I said, if, if you've just done that, Almost every history 
the history of every civilization and nation has done that. That's also true for the earliest Arabs. This is why they referred to the Maghazi of the Prophet ﷺ. Not because that was the focus. Later, if people turned to Europe and said, the whole of the 20th, 20th, well, the whole of these centuries, late centuries, were just marked by war. So all we know about the 20th century is war, war, war. Is that all they ever did? It's going back to what I was saying. This is what marked the changes. And Churchill, why is he remembered? Because of the war. In many ways, it's a historical fact. In terms of politics, he wasn't greatly remembered for his policies or for his politics because he, he switched parties as well. What was he remembered for? For the war. Chamberlain, in terms of policies and politics and social progress and other political domestic achievements, he ranked far greater and much higher than Churchill. But he was regarded as a failure because of the war. So it's war that made or broke men. It's war that made or uh, destroyed reputations. And it was always about conflict. That at the, at the critical juncture of a conflict, how did people stand? What did people do? When loyalty was demanded, when loyalty was needed, how people stood then. And this has been the case with everyone. And so even with the Prophet and the Sahaba who were around him. When they did Hijrah, they arrived in a new place, they settled, they devoted themselves to their faith. But because of this ongoing conflict with the Meccan state, it's inevitably led to a battle in the second year of Hijrah. And that's what made the difference. Again in the third year of Hijrah with Uhud. And then again there were also intervening skirmishes. But again in the fifth year of Hijrah with the campaign of the trench. So this is why we refer to these important events and these milestones because this is what was etched in people's memory. And not only that, but collectively. We're not just talking about individual incidents, but collectively, this was a real test of loyalty. And these were major watersheds, dramatic and sudden, and radical shifts from one state to the other. This is why people remembered them, and this is why we mentioned them in that manner. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says here that the believers are only those who believed in Allah and in his messenger. Then they did not doubt. And who fought with their lives and with their wealth. 
And this is a reference to the history of the early companions from the time of their emigration from Mecca to the conquest of Mecca for eight years. And this was a reminder to those people of the Asad tribe who claimed faith and who claimed deeper iman that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them, yes, say that you are Muslim, say that you've submitted apparently, but do not claim higher inner faith. That is, if you really want to see, why is Allah saying that iman has not yet entered your heart? It's not because they were hypocrites. It's not because they were, they hadn't believed at all. It's because they had embraced Islam, but only relatively recently, and only in peacetime, and only after the struggles had ended. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them that the true believers are these, meaning the companions, the muhajirun and the ansar of the early years till the eighth year of hijrah. Look at them. They are the ones who have believed in Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They have not doubted or swerved or wavered in the least. And they stood with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When he bled, they bled with him. When he fought, they stood alongside him. And they sacrificed their lives and their wealth in the way of Allah. Allah then ends a verse by saying, These are the truthful. So do not misunderstand the context. This is in reference to the early companions, anhum, and Allah is comparing them with the claimants of the Asad tribe, who had just embraced Islam and yet were claiming higher faith and deeper iman. Allah then continues by saying, Qul Say, do you... I wouldn't use the words teach Allah your faith, although literally that's what it means. Say, do you apprise Allah of your faith? Do you make Allah aware of your faith? When Allah knows all that is in the heavens and in the earth. Allah bi alim, And Allah is all-knowing of all things. This is in reference to the previous verse. Not just the one we've just completed, but the one before that, the one which we did last week. When they said, The Bedouin said, we have believed. We have faith, we have iman. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them here, What do you make Allah aware of what's in your hearts? That you claim to have true faith and religion. And you say it in such a manner as though you are informing Allah and telling him of what your hearts contain. When Allah is the one who knows all that is in the heavens and in the earth, and Allah is all-knowing of all things, what this means is, do not be mistaken. Allah knows the reality of your faith, of your piety. And this is clarified by another verse of the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that He is more knowing and aware of you. He knew more of you 
وَإِذْ أَنْتُمْ أَجِنَّةٌ فِي بُطُونِ أُمَّهَاتِكُمْ When you were fetuses in the wombs of your mothers. فَلَا تُزَكُّوا أَنفُسَكُمْ Therefore do not declare yourselves to be pure. هُوَ أَعْلَمُ بِمَنِ اتَّقَى He, Allah, is more knowing and more aware of one who is more conscious and wary of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So do not, فَلَا تُزَكُّوا أَنفُسَكُمْ Do not declare yourselves to be pure. So here as well, Allah tells a Bedouin that, what do you really try to make Allah aware of what's in your heart? By claiming that you have Iman, Iman has not yet entered your heart. Yes, you are Muslim. You've embraced, apparently. But do not regard yourselves as belonging in the same category as the true believers who have proven their faith with the Messenger وسلم, for the past eight years, from the time of the Hijrah till the conquest of Mecca. In the penultimate verse of this surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, They boast of their favor to you, that they have embraced Islam. Say, do not boast of your favor to me, of your Islam. بَلِ اللَّهُ يَمُنُّ عَلَيْكُمْ أَنْ هَدَاكُمْ لِلْإِيمَانِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ صَادِقِينَ Rather, Allah boasts of His favour to you, that He guided you to faith, if you are true. Again, it's a reference to Banu Asad, that I said earlier on that they made a number of claims. One of them was, we are mu'min, we are believers. The other claim that they made was, that they told the Prophet ﷺ, O Messenger of Allah, we have believed in you without ever having fought against you. So unlike some of the other tribes who opposed you and who fought against you, we have never been in conflict with you. So, yes, we've come to embrace now, we've embraced Islam now. But even before, we never fought you, we never opposed you, unlike some of the other tribes who have embraced, but they have a history of conflict with you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them that يَمُنُّونَ عَلَيْكَ أَنْ أَسْلَمُ That a messenger of Allah, they boast of their favor to you of their embracing Islam. That the manner in which they have embraced, by never opposing you, by never engaging in conflict with you, So say to them, O Messenger of Allah, do not boast of your Islam to me. Do not boast of your favor to me. That you have done me no favors by refraining from opposing me or engaging in conflicts with me. One, you cannot compare yourselves to the true believers, the companions who are with the Prophet and the fact that you remain neutral before Islam and that you speak of that neutrality in such terms is unbefitting you. 
Because that's almost like you are boasting of your favour to the Prophet of Allah. Don't boast of your favour. If anyone should boast, it should be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who tells you that you, the Prophet sallallahu should not be thankful to you that you never opposed him and that you embraced now without having a history of conflict with him. Rather, if anyone should be thankful, it's not the messenger of Allah, it's you. You should be thankful that Allah ever guided you. If you are true. So they boast of their favour to you. <coughs> of their Islam. That they have embraced. Say to them, do not boast of your Islam to me. Rather, Allah boasts of his favour to you. That he guided you to iman, to faith. In kuntum sadiqeen, if you are, if you are true. إن الله يعلم غيب السماوات والأرض والله بصير بما تعملون. Indeed, Allah knows all that is. Sorry. Indeed, Allah knows the unseen of the heavens and the earth, and Allah is watchful over what you do. This brings us to the end. The meaning of this final verse is self-evident. This brings us to the end of Surah Al-Hujurat. Now, before we conclude, I'd just like to go through a quick summary and wrap up the theme of the surah. As I mentioned right at the beginning, the theme of the surah is the society of Medina. The teachings of Islam shaped this society and it was an egalitarian equal, just, fair, sociable, caring community and society. And this theme runs through the entire surah from the very beginning. So right at the beginning we learnt about people recognising their boundaries and their limits and showing respect a lot of respect is to do with recognizing one's boundaries so when people recognize their boundaries with Allah first of all how can a person recognize their boundaries and their limits with creation when they fail to stop at the limits and when they fail to recognize the boundaries with their creator. If someone is disrespectful to Allah, their creator, how can they be respectful to the creation? If someone violates the boundaries with Allah, the creator, what prevents them from violating boundaries with creation? So Allah begins the surah by setting the boundaries and reminding the believers that do not overstep the mark. Do not try to surpass Allah and his messenger Why the messenger? Because he is a representative of Allah. 
So the surah begins by laying the boundaries and reminding the believers that recognize your boundaries and your limits with Allah and respect them. Respect the creator. Respect the boundaries. And part of that respect is not just to observe the limits of the law, is not just to observe the letter of the law. Rather, the very second verse speaks about respect. The first one is about recognizing the boundary. The second one is about social respect, etiquette. And that means it's not just about do's and don'ts, halal and haram, where someone rigidly and inflexibly adheres to the law and is very careful, but socially inept, socially lacking etiquette and manners and behavior. No. Along with recognizing the boundaries, one has to show genuine respect. And part of that respect is etiquette, compassion, behavior, modesty. And then obviously Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructs the believers first of all to be respectful to Allah, to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then... If someone is disrespectful to Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, how can they be respectful to others? And then following on from the laying of the boundaries and instructing the believers to be respectful, which even means being mindful of how to speak with the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that includes, about, that includes speech and conversation with each other, how we speak to each other, how we address each other, how we engage with each other. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of the incident in which the Bedouin arrived and disturbed the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam by calling out to him in a very unrefined and rough manner. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches them etiquettes of even visiting, how to visit people. And of showing respect that you needed the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa he was resting, you should have waited until he came out. That was disrespectful to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa But in general, that's how they were. Since they had the Bedouin, had failed to develop this refinement. That meant that that's how they spoke and that's how they behaved with everyone, the Messenger of Allah and each other. So even the way we speak to each other is part of that other, part of that etiquette, part of that respect. Respecting people's privacy, people's needs. Here, it's so simple. If someone's resting, you let them rest. This is why in Islam, no one has a right to disturb the other. You knock thrice. There's no answer. They may be busy. Even though you know they're in the house. They may be busy. They may be indisposed. 
they may have many reasons for not opening the door. They genuinely may be not in a fit mental, emotional state to see you. And you should respect that. Allah says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu la tadkhulu buyutan ghayra buyutikum hatta tastanisu wa tsallimu ala ahliha. O believers, do not enter any homes other than your homes until you seek leave and permission and until you do not greet the occupants. These are all parts of that etiquette of social behavior. This is good for them, good for us. And the fun is included in this. We have made the fun intrusive. When we knock on people's doors, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they were in the house, but they didn't want to open the door, they wouldn't open it. People would leave. And no one should feel bad about it. These are minor things, but they're all part of that etiquette, that adab, that respect. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions something far more serious. After speaking about boundaries, limits, respect, adab, and etiquette, Allah speaks about how we form judgments of each other, what we think of each other. So that respect, those limits, are not just limited to and confined to one's speech or one's behavior. We have to recognize those limits and respect those boundaries even in the deepest recesses of our minds and hearts. That without uttering a single word, we should not violate the boundaries in our hearts and minds in relation to others. That means do not judge others. Do not condemn them in your heart and mind. Do not decide about them. Do not judge them. Do not label them. Do not believe anything about them without proof, without evidence. Do not reach any judgment about them. And then Allah mentions that all of these laws, all of these restrictions, are not meant to shackle you, or to suppress you, or to burden you. Rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, وَعْلَمُوا أَنَّ فِيكُمْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ That know that amongst you there is a messenger of Allah. When he teaches you these things, he is no mere mortal. He is the messenger of Allah. And therefore you should do what he says, rather than expecting him to do what you say. Why? لو يطيعكم في كثير من الأمر لعنتم. That if he was to obey you in what you want, you would suffer first. And it's true. We should not try to shape the teachings of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam and mould them to suit our whims and desires. Rather, we should try to mould ourselves to conform with the teachings of Allah and his noble messenger Even during the time of the Quraysh in Mecca, they said to him, that bring us a Quran other than this, or change this. So the Quraysh actually said to him, that, oh Muhammad, do you know what? We would believe in you, we would follow you, we would listen to you, but you know the Quran that you've brought, we don't like this. 
So replace this with another Qur'an entirely. And if you can't replace the Qur'an entirely, change this one. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, say to them, قُلْ مَا يَكُونَ لِي أَنْ أُبَدِّلَهُمْ مِنْ تِلْقَاءِ نَفْسِي إِنْ أَتَّبِعُ إِلَّا مَا يُوحَى إِلَيْهِ That say to them, O Messenger of Allah, that it is not possible for me, it is not permissible for me, that I change the Qur'an of my own accord. In fact, even I, in أَتَّبِعُ إِلَّا مَا يُوحَى إِلَيْهِ I only follow that which is revealed to me. So if the Messenger of Allah could not change the Qur'an, So this demand that the Qur'an be replaced or it be changed, that's as old as Islam itself. It's as old as the Qur'an itself. So rather than expecting the teachings of Allah and the teachings of His Messenger وسلم, to conform to our desires and wishes and to our whims and fancies, we should be trying to mould ourselves to conform to the words of Allah and His Rasul who is in need of moulding and shaping and repairing and reforming? Who? We or the Qur'an? We or the words of the Messenger And if we went down that path, we'd have a billion Qur'ans. We'd have a billion hadith or a billion interpretations of the hadith. And if we embark on that journey, and if we adopt that path, even in our daily lives, because of our own shifting, changing attitudes, mentality, and opinions, we will take the Qur'an and the Hadith and the words of Allah and the words of His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam on a merry-go-round and on a, and on a roller coaster ride and on a merry journey with us. As we change, we change the words of Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And there is no stability, no conformity, no uniformity, no steadfastness. Indeed, religion becomes a joke. And what did Allah say of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum? Alladheena amanu billahi wa rasoolih thumma nam yartabu Those who believed in Allah and His Messenger and then they did not doubt. They did not swerve. They did not waver. In another verse, Inna alladheena qaru rabbuna Allah thumma istaqamu tatanazzalu alayhimu malaika that those who have believed or those who have said Allah is our Lord then they were steadfast what happens with them the angels gradually and continuously descend upon them Reassuring them and saying to them, Allah Do not fear. 
وَلَا تَحْزَنُ And do not grieve. And receive the glad tidings of that Jannah of which you were promised. نَحْنُ أَوْلِيَاءُكُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ We are your guardians. We are your friends in the worldly life and in the afterlife. That's because of their istiqamah, their steadfastness. A man came to the Prophet ﷺ and said to him, Ya Rasulullah, advise me. Prophet ﷺ said to him, Qul billah, Say, I believe in Allah, thumma istiqim. Then remain steadfast. And taqwa, taqwa is that a person remains steadfast. That's the meaning of sabr. One of the greatest misunderstandings of the term sabr is that we think sabr means patience, as in English. And we've restricted it to the meaning of patient. I, a patient person. So we've restricted the meaning of sabr to patience in English, i.e. Tolerance, forbearance, and patience. That's all. But in Arabic, sabr doesn't just mean patience. Sabr actually means steadfastness. Which means that no change comes over you, even in adversity, even in strife, and even in difficulty. So there is no sudden reaction, no sudden change, no sudden transformation. That's the meaning of sabr. So in English, sabr should actually be perseverance rather than patience. And patience comes as a secondary meaning. And that's steadfastness. So we demand Rather than us demanding that we, that the words of Allah and the words of His Rasul wasallam conform to our whims and desires, it should be the other way around. We should be the ones who should remain sabir, meaning perseverant and patient and steadfast and consistent in our observing the words of Allah and His Rasul wasallam. Change, let us change ourselves, not change the words of Allah and His Rasul. And that's what Allah mentions here in the next part. Then Allah speaks about disagreement and conflict, which is a fact of life. But how should that be resolved? So even if two groups of believers engage in conflict, there is a way, there is a manner of resolving that with justice with fairness and then Allah reminds us about brotherhood <coughs> that believers are only brothers amongst themselves therefore even when you do disagree even when you do differ confine that disagreement and do not let it spill over contain it <coughs> And reconcile yourselves. 
Then, speaking of brotherhood, remember this theme of an equal, egalitarian, fair, just, compassionate society. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about brotherhood. But then Allah mentions individual constituents, components of brotherhood. That brotherhood can't be realized by mere slogans. But you must avoid things, you must do things, you must instill things in your character and in society. And those things are mentioned. Do not, sp- do not mock one another. Do not engage in the sins of the tongue against each other. So earlier on, do not engage in the sins of the mind and heart against each other. Then do not engage in the sins of the tongue against each other. Labelling, name-calling, taunting. Mocking, and then again, do not engage in suspicion or spying or defamation, character assassination, backbiting. Now, we may not think much of this, but this is all in keeping with the theme of the surah. This is what destroys society, in fact, it destroys families. And then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of. Again, something else that's in keeping with this theme, and that is egalitarianism, equality, true equality. Allah, in a very powerful and profound verse, declares that on mankind we have created you from one man and one woman. You are all equal. Your colour, your complexion, your ethnicity, your racial background, your ethnic background, your language, your nationality, your identity, your kin, your clan, your family, your surname, your titles, none of these confer any special privileges on you. None of them. All of you are from Adam, and Adam was created from the dust of the earth. And this egalitarianism, this brotherhood work, all realized during the time of the Prophet And then, having concluded that, what we covered over the last two weeks was the meaning of true faith. These are all the things that make a good community, a good society, that lead to that brotherhood, that compassion, that equality, the respecting of those boundaries, those limits, the observing of these etiquettes which is not mere slogans, but true inner faith, true inner spirituality. And Allah gives the example of the Bedouin, who were late comers to Islam, who embraced, who boasted of their favour, of having embraced Islam without ever opposing the Messenger wasallam, who felt, or sorry, whose words suggested that they were doing someone else a favour by embracing and that others should be thankful for their embracing in that manner. Rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds them, Allah, you should be thankful to Allah that he guided you. And as Allah says in, the, in Jannah, the people of Jannah will say, Alhamdulillah alladhi hadana lihada wa ma kunna linahtadiya lawla an hadana Allah. That all praise be to Allah who led us and guided us to this. And we were not such that we would have ever found guidance if Allah had not guided us. So we should be thankful to Allah. And that 
Islam is is ultimately a parent submission. But inner faith is something else. All of these topics come together to create that individual. First of all, the individual who has true belief in Allah, who submits apparently to Allah, who acts according to the teachings of religion apparently, but that apparent submission is reflected within with deep inner faith, with profound faith that leads him to speaking, thinking, feeling, and behaving in the manner that Allah describes. In, though, in that manner which is conducive to achieving brotherhood, creating love and compassion and harmony with others. Someone who respects limits and boundaries, the boundaries and limits between him and Allah, the Creator, between him and the Messenger, and between him and creation. When an individual is rounded and grounded in this manner, he or she is merely one individual in a whole community of like-minded, similar, characterized individuals who make up that society and community. And this is no dream. This is no fantasy. The community, the society, the individuals of such loft-mindedness, of such lofty character, of such profound faith and brilliant behaviour, such a society was realised, was seen, was observed and witnessed in Medina, in the city of the Prophet This is how the Sahaba were. And in the few verses where they were criticised and where they were reprimanded, we should remember that they were merely, they are, these are examples being used to educate the rest of the Ummah, the rest of creation. Otherwise, these were minor lapses which were corrected. In fact, Allah correct, corrected even the Prophet ﷺ in the Quran. Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, he was blind and he would come to see the Prophet. ﷺ. The Quraysh, the chieftains of the Quraysh, since Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum was poor and not highly regarded, the Quraysh demanded of the Prophet ﷺ that do not surround yourself with this riffraff and with this rabble and we agree to sit with you and speak to you. We don't want to be seen with them. So on one occasion he was seated with one of the chieftains of the Quraysh and Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum came. And since he was blind, he spoke to the Prophet The Prophet was engaged with the with someone else and he hoped that by engaging with him and speaking to him I would be able to draw him to religion and win him over. As for Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum he is already a sincere believer so I can attend to him afterwards. So the Prophet declined to entertain him, didn't grant him an audience and didn't listen to him at that time so Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum <coughs> went away. And then whatever the pressing need was, he came back. So the Prophet ﷺ again told him and continued with the Qurayshi. 
But on this occasion, the Prophet ﷺ was mildly annoyed and irritated. So he frowned in disapproval. Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum obviously didn't see the frown, but Allah did. And Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum left. And he was hurt of heart. A blind, sincere believer who was regarded as being grossly inferior to the extent that they did not want to sit in his company, i.e. the Quraysh. His heart was hurt and he left. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verses, Abasa wa tawalla, anja'ahu al-a'ma, wa ma yudrika la'allahu yazzakka, aw yadhakkaru fatanfa'ahu al-dhikra, amma man istaghna fanta lahu tasadda, wa ma alayka alla yazzakka, Allah said, speaking in the third person. He didn't even say you did. He said, He frowned. He frowned and turned away. Because a blind one came to him. And what do you know, O Prophet of Allah? Maybe he wishes to seek purity. Or be admonished. And then the admonition benefits him. As for one who regards himself independent and needless, so you pursue him? Even though it is not your duty that he seeks purity. And as for one who comes to you, in haste, rushing, whilst fearing, Allah testified to the taqwa of Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum. So from him you turn away. Nay, this is an admonition, meaning the Quran. So whoever wishes, he will be reminded thereof. I.e., Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, you do not need to employ these strategies in order to win their hearts. You do your duty, you do what you have to do. This admonition is clear. Whoever wants to believe will believe. Whoever wants to be admonished will be admonished. But in the process, O Prophet of Allah, in order to attract others, do not hurt the belief. Allah said that to the Prophet that in your zeal, in your eagerness, your enthusiasm to win others, do not hurt those who are already your own. That was Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum. So Allah reprimanded even the Prophet And then later it's mentioned and narrated that when Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum would come to see him, the Prophet would honor him and say, welcome a one regarding whom even Allah reprimanded me. A welcome a one regarding whom Allah reprimanded. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala corrected even the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the Qur'an. Even the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the Qur'an. Even Abu Bakr and Umar radiyallahu anhumah at the beginning of this surah. Even the other sahaba radiyallahu anhum and even the Bedouin. Because that is the Qur'an. In fact, 
Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha says of a verse of the Qur'an that if the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam was an imposter who was the author of the Qur'an, he would have never included that verse in the Qur'an. This is about another verse. Regarding his marriage to Zainab bin Tujahsh radiyallahu anha in Surah Al-Ahzab and Zayd ibn Haritha radiyallahu anha's story. She said he would have never included that verse in the Qur'an if he was an imposter. So, but why does Allah correct the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, even the Shaykhain Abu Bakr and Umar, even the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and Allah even corrected mildly, mildly and lovingly, Allah cherishingly chastised the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But because... This is the book, which is a guide. And in that guide, in order to teach the creation and the ummah, Allah will even correct his messenger. Allah will correct the most senior sahaba. Allah will correct his household. Allah will correct the companions. Some of them or all of them. Allah will correct his creation. So in the, of, this was the ideal society that was realized at the time. And even though Allah corrects them in here, this correction is a lesson for us. Otherwise, even those Bedouin who failed to observe the correct etiquette towards Rasulullah and of whom Allah said they understand very little, of course, after this reprimand, they were corrected. And even the Banu Asad, who embraced and who made some of these claims that Allah corrects here, even they, they became the most sincere and the firmest of believers. And despite these instances in which they were corrected, the collective deeds of the ummah cannot match a moment that they spent with Rasulullah They were uniquely honored. So apart from these corrections, this was indeed a society, a community that was based on these teachings of Surah Al-Hujarat. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who, fought, who truly believe in Allah and in His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam who follow in the footsteps of the noble companions radiyallahu anhum. May Allah enable us to observe the beautiful etiquettes that are expounded in the surah. May Allah make us amongst those who recognize and observe the limits and boundaries set in the surah in relation to our in relation to our creator and in relation to the creation, Muslim or non-Muslim. May Allah make us amongst those who observe these, who respect and observe these limits and these boundaries, not just in deed and not just in speech, but even in mind and even in heart. May we not judge one another, taunt one another, backbite one another, slander one another, label one another. And may Allah make us amongst those who, who realize or and always remain conscious of our origin, that we all belong to the same family. We are ultimately brothers and sisters. That we are all descendants of one parent, one set of parents of Adam and Hawa salam, Muslim or non-Muslim, we are still all of one family. 
and that there is no one who is better than the other by virtue of race, ethnicity, background, colour, complexion, language. Rather, the only defining characteristic, the only distinguishing feature by Allah is the consciousness of Allah. Nothing else. It's taqwa. May Allah make us amongst those whose outer deeds and outer submission is reflected in inner faith. May Allah make us amongst those who are not just Muslim in name, but Muslim and Mu'min, who have that Iman in our hearts. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasooli nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayka.